What happens when a big company wants to use an old limestone quarry as a landfill for other cities' garbage? In the case of a proposed landfill near the town of Ingersoll, what happened was the community stood up and said no. You can learn more about this David and Goliath story on the Ingersoll Landfill, how a community fought back and won. A 519 podcast available to download for free on your favorite podcast app or at the 519podcast.com. the name Labatt. You know the beer and you know the family's history in southwestern Ontario. But did you know that John Labatt was once the victim of a high-profile kidnapping? On this episode of the 519 Podcast, you'll hear about the 1934 kidnapping of John Sackville Labatt, the grandson of the founder of the Brewing Empire. Here's the host of the 519 Podcast, Haley Chang. In 1933, an entire industry in the United States died. That was the year the U.S. government ended its prohibition on alcohol. Suddenly, thousands of bootleggers were out of work. Many decided to go legit, while others began focusing their efforts on other vices, like gambling and prostitution. But there were some who decided that the key to keeping the money flowing was kidnapping rich people for ransom. And that's where our story begins. The day was August 14, 1934, just eight months after the end of Prohibition. And John Sackville Labatt, the 54-year-old grandson of the founder of what would become the Labatt Brewing Empire, had just left his home near Sarnia to head back to the company's London offices. When he crossed paths with Michael Francis McArdle, Jack Bannon, Albert Pegram, and Russell Knowles. Those four men would make John Labatt, at the time, the most famous kidnapping victim in Canada. Susan Goldenberg is the author of Snatch, the peculiar kidnapping of beer tycoon John Labatt. After Prohibition ended in the States in December 1933, bootleggers were for money. It never occurred to them that maybe go legit. And so they, January 1934, the son of the owner of Schmidt's Brewery Company in St. Paul, Minnesota, a man named Edward Bremer was um, kidnapped and a ransom of $200,000 U.S. was paid. So this gave McCardle the idea of a kidnapping. He he didn't start off with uh, thinking of Labatt. He started off thinking of Samuel Bronfman, the head of Seagram's, and he joined a bunch of other crooks, and they went to Montreal to kidnap Bronfman. However, they all got drunk. And the gang disbanded. And then McArdle thought of Labatt. Labatt's was one of the um, uh, richest companies in Canada at the time. It was worth about 100, equivalent of $100 million today. John Labatt was leaving his home in Bright's Grove, just outside of Sarnia, and was running late to a meeting with his brother Hugh at their family-owned brewing dynasty in London. In a rush to the office, he took Egremont Road, a dusty back road in Kamlaki, leading to Highway 22. It was a quiet road, enclosed by trees and with little traffic. A perfect shortcut to make the meeting. But in taking that shortcut, where the only visual Labatt was supposed to see was a cloud of dust behind him, he noticed a car creeping up in the distance. And while Labatt was well over the speed limit on his own, the car approaching was going even faster. He was a little bit suspicious of the vehicle and pulled off to the side of the road to allow the car to pass, which it did. Relieved, Labatt continued down Egremont after the car was well out of sight. 
But after a few more minutes of driving, Labat could see the other car pulled over in the distance. He wasn't in the clear just yet. He slowly approached, keeping his distance. And when he got closer, the other car suspiciously pulled away. The game of cat and mouse continued a few times before Labat pulled in close one final time. This time, instead of pulling away, three armed men with masks on came out of the vehicle. Stick them up quick, they said. This is a kidnapping. Kidnapping is hard work, and Ricardo needed what he thought was an elite squad of accomplices. Michael Macario was a career criminal who'd been born uh, near Seaforth, which is near London, and he was then in his 40s, and he saw himself as a criminal mastermind, but he really wasn't that bright. And he, he brought into the kidnapping uh, three, uh, three of us, men also in their 40s, Russell Knowles, Jack Bannon, and Albert P. Graham. The three, the, all of them had been bootleggers during prohibition. They split up uh, after they uh, kidnapped Labatt. Russell Knowles um, took the note and drove Labatt's car to back to London and parked it outside St. Joseph's Hospital, left the note under the front seat, then called Hugh Labatt. It was, it was in the lunch hour and Hugh Labatt was at home and his phone number was listed in the telephone directory. So Knowles called and told him to go look for this note in the car. Hugh Labatt did find the note and learned that his brother, in fact, had been kidnapped. The note said, August 14, 1934. Dear Hugh, do as these men have instructed you to do, and don't go to the police. They promise not to harm me if you negotiate with them. Your affectionate brother, John S. Labatt. We are holding your brother for $150,000 ransom. Go to Toronto immediately and register in the Royal York Hotel. We will negotiate with you from that point. Be prepared when I get in touch with you to furnish me with the names of two or three reliable parties who you can trust to deliver the money. We advise you keep this matter away from the police and newspapers so we can return your brother safely. You will know me as Three-Fingered Abe. Despite the kidnapper's insistence to keep the note quiet, it was leaked to the press that same day. A massive manhunt followed, which got police officers all over the province involved. Ricardo and uh, Pegram, with Pegram at the wheel, drove Labatt up near Bracebridge, which is about a 270-mile drive, and it would have taken about six hours because cars didn't go as fast then as today, and also they took back roads. And they chose a place to stay, which was in the woods near the lake, Muskoka, which was seems on the surface to be smart. However, the um, cabin was in the midst of a cottager's camp, and there were cottages nearby. You would think a, a smart kidnapper would have chosen a truly isolated place. Their treatment of Labatt isn't, wasn't probably what most kidnapped victims are accustomed to. He, he was, um, he was, all his clothes were taken away except his underwear, and he was leashed with a chain to the bed, but he was fed so much food, he got indigestion. They fed him pork chops, beans, cookies, oranges, eggs, bread, butter, honey, toffee, pretzels. So as I said, he got indigestion. And Ricardo solicitously uh, apologized for not having any bicarbonate of soda. And Ricardo 
also shaved Labat and combed his hair. And he said if Labat promised not to look at him, his face, he would take off the tape and Labat could wash his eyes. And Labat promised and he didn't look. But McCardle wasn't, uh, his face wasn't covered, which wasn't too bright. <laughs> While McCardle and Pegram were getting Labat settled in cottage country, Knowles had duties of his own. By then, the kidnapping was public news because somebody in the police must have leaked it to the press. When he got to uh, Toronto, Knowles decided to stay at the um, luxury King Edward Hotel with money made from robberies. And he, uh, when he went in for dinner at the hotel's dining room, an elderly man asked him to, to sit with him and identified himself as an RCMP officer sent to look into the case. And this is one case where the RCMP did not get their man. After narrowly avoiding disaster with that close call, it was anything but smooth sailing for the gang from this point on. So the next sort of unusual thing was that McArdle sent Pegram to Toronto to pick up Knowles and bring him to the hideout. But when Pegram got to Toronto, he, he saw lots of newspaper headlines and police patrolling the streets. So he just took off, which stranded Knowles. So Knowles had to take a bus to, Knowles could have left, but he was loyal to Ricardo. And he took a bus to Bracebridge and then trudged late at night to the to the Hydro Cottage. While Knowles made it back to Muskoka, the kidnapping had reached a point where it was clear that there was no way it was ever going to be pulled off in the way they had planned. The kidnapping dream team already had one person desert them, and the kidnapping itself had reached a level of international attention they couldn't have comprehended. It was time to adjust on the fly. Their final solution was to get Labatt to agree to the terms of a 25000 payment for his return to Toronto, which Labatt did very quickly. So it was time to cover their tracks, like the professionals they were. McArdle had a gun jammed into Labatt's side, which brings to mind another peculiarity. When they left Muskoka, he and Knowles threw their guns into the bushes of a nearby golf course when they could have easily tossed them into the lake to disappear. For anyone that knows golf, anything hidden in the bushes of a golf course is probably going to get found by a duffer looking for their errant shot. So with that being the extent of their cover-up, the next hurdle came to light. Getting Labatt to Toronto was going to be difficult. The kidnapping had made him the most recognizable man in Canada. It was international news. It was, uh, the New York, it was in the, on the front page of the New York Times and also on the, their electronic ticker around uh, Times Square. It was in the Times of London, and it's all over the press in Canada. Their solution, to dress Labatt in a straw hat with the same sight-blocking goggles they put on him on the way to the cottage. Pure genius. And they continue to show that sort of resourcefulness in replacing the car Pegram took in order to bring Labatt back to town. McCardle happened to know um, a man named Gerald Nicholson, who'd also been a bootlegger and happened to be at Bracebridge and asked him to drive himself and two others to Toronto without saying who Labatt was. But when Nicholson saw Labatt, he knew who he was. Nevertheless, he, he drove them to, to Toronto. They let Labatt out of the car, removed his uh, the tape, and uh, handed him $1 from the $99 in cash that they had, they had taken from him. So he would have a cab fare 
go to the Royal York Hotel and the Cardinal told him the route that the cab should take. And Knowles later said that the Cardinal shook hands with Labatt. So Labatt trudged over uh, to a couple of blocks to a, a busier street, uh, St. Clair and Bathurst, and, and uh, uh, held a cab. Now, strangely, the, the, although Labatt's face had been all over the newspapers, the, uh, the cab driver didn't recognize him. And when the cab got to the hotel, Labatt walked through hordes of the uh, police and reporters, and nobody recognized him. And when he got to the uh, front desk, the duty clerk didn't recognize him. So he had to say, I am John Labatt. And then they took him by a back elevator to meet his brother, Hugh. With Labatt safe from the kidnappers, he eventually made his way home to London, reuniting with his wife and children. But even while he was safe at home, there was still the looming fact that he was supposed to pay $25,000 to the kidnappers and that they were still at large and could come for him. The police were in pursuit, and much like the kidnapping itself, that did not go as planned. During the investigation, Labatt was shown a lineup of pictures of known American criminals and the ones that were suspected of being involved in the kidnapping. He picked two people from the lineup, Albert Pegram and David Meisner, a small-time gambler who had declined McArdle's invitation to take part in the kidnapping. David Meisner was wrongly suspected of being the ringleader, and he was arrested in Detroit and brought to London's Middlesex jail. And at his trial, Labatt testified against him, and uh, Meisner was convicted for kidnapping. At Meisner's original trial, he, he said he could easily prove he wasn't involved because two police detectives in Kentucky could say he was in Kentucky at the time of the kidnapping. But when the detectives came and testified, one of them turned out to be a very shady character uh, and uh, on the fringe of being arrested himself if he didn't have uh, relatives high in the police force. And so these two police detectives, before their testimony was due to continue, fled out of town in their car. Already in for one wrongful conviction, the police continued on. When a few months later, things began to unravel for the, for the real kidnappers. McArdle was captured during, while he was in a robbery he was undertaking near Chicago. He was under an alias named uh, James Parker, and he was taken to, to prison. And Jack Bannon had a sideline as a police informant, and he tipped off the police that James Parker was Michael McArdle. So Labatt and the Crown Attorney, a man named Norman Newton in the case, went to the jail, which was in Hammond, Indiana, near Chicago, and McArdle said, Hi, John! So Labatt and Newton realized that a mistake had been made. And then McArdle turned on Bannon and said he was one of the kidnappers. So Bannon was arrested. Knowles was arrested a few months after that, and when he, when he was about to uh, engage in burglary near Chicago, he, he was caught with a whole bunch of burglary tools. Pegram was never caught. All sorts of speculation as to why he disappeared, but never caught. In the 1930s, you, uh, there were a lot of gangster movies, and in one of them starring James Cagney, 
he gave a famous line, you yellow belly, dirty rat, which became shortened in public usage, you dirty rat, which has gone down through the ages. And that's how I think of the kidnappers turning on each other. McArdle finally said that it was he and not uh, Meisner who was the gang leader. But it took quite a while until Meisner got a new trial. I think he would have got it immediately, but no, because the office of the Ontario Attorney General at the time, a man named Arthur Roebuck, didn't want to admit that he made a mistake. But finally, Meisner got his got a new trial. Now, Labatt testified for him, and Norman Newton testified for him. Meisner won his trial and was set free. He was paid $5,000 in restitution by Labatt and became the only person to make money from the kidnapping. Eventually, everyone but Pegram was convicted and were given pretty severe sentences. Cardinal got uh, 15 years because he'd ratted on Bannon. And Bannon got 25 years, and so did Knowles. Cardinal, when he got out, got a job as a janitor. He died of cancer. He had a pauper's burial. Bannon, who lived in uh, Windsor, went back to Windsor and went into construction work. Knowles was a question mark. A few months afterwards, Labatt started to receive mysterious anonymous phone calls from the Boston area demanding money. And he also received anonymous letters that were threatening, which police thought were from Knowles, but he was never caught. Although he was finally safe at home, the kidnapping brought a level of tension to the Labatt family that was just a tad too much. And after receiving the slew of threatening phone calls and letters from Knowles, Labatt began to live a much more private life. Being the victim of a kidnapping brings a level of internal caution that would be hard to live with. If it could happen once, could it happen again? And so Labatt made sure that security was put in place to keep him and his family safe. John Labatt's high profile and family legacy caught the attention of so many people in the 1930s, and the kidnapping continues to live on as one of the most infamous in Canadian history. I became interested in it because there are a number of firsts that occurred. Uh, Labatt was the first important Canadian to be kidnapped, the first for a high ransom, equivalent to $3 million today, the first, first kidnapping in Canada to come to trial, the first major case of mistaken identity. And kidnapping is a very serious, nasty crime, and a wrong man was convicted and Labatt's wife, Bessie's hair turned white from the ordeal. But I also was interested because there is bizarre humor involved, which is why I called the book A Peculiar Kidnapping. Though the severity of kidnapping should never be downplayed, it is also true that this story was absolutely stranger than fiction. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Cheng. It was produced by Craig Needles and written by Patrick Magermans. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.